Just a few verses for this morning's message. And we're going to look at part two of the cupbearer and the wall builder. I don't want to, I know we've only done one message on this and this is our second. I don't want to uh, let it outrun its welcome, but I may need one more to bring us to somewhere. I'm trying to lay down some foundations for you to grasp hold off from last week to this. And then it's the idea of where we are, where we could go to, what God wants to do with you to encourage you in your faith. Nehemiah chapter 2, please. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and then Ezra, Nehemiah. And that's where you'll find it. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 2. Just a few verses, five verses. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, left waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, to the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this number that you have brought this morning. Thank you, Father, that you have brought so many out and led it in their hearts to come to this place. Thank you, Father. That this is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. We do worship you, and we've already told you, Father, this morning how much we love you. Help us to love you more, Lord Jesus. Help us to serve you in the capacity you deem fit for us, and help us, Lord, to walk with you. Reveal yourself more and more to us. And draw us, everyone, closer to thine own good self. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah, the captive of Judah. Judah, as we told you, is the southern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom in the north have been carried away captive approximately 120 years beforehand. And they're no longer there. Just a, a few of remnant of the, the, those who escaped that captivity will be left there. And now others are being, as it were, planted in that land. Judah, the southern kingdom, is now in Babylon. And we looked at that last week. And because they're in Babylon, they hang their trees. Remember the psalmist? They hang their, their, their harps on their willow trees, pardon me. And then 
uh, uh, they say we can't sing a, the Lord's song in a strange land because they're bereft of the place where God had brought them to. You see, sometimes we feel that whenever we're in the world, Christian, sometimes it may look enticing to us, but you find the true Christian. Why do I say that? Because there are many who have claimed to know Christ and loved him, and yet they really didn't know him. They really didn't know him. The true believer, when they're in the world, will always feel the uncomfortableness that the world brings to them. The true believer in a place where it's ungodly will find, if they find themselves in a place like that, they'll find they have no song to sing there. I spoke just recently to someone, and I was just delighted to hear it, and they're not too long saved, and they said, you know, when I go to speak to old friends, I, I, I find I have nothing to talk to them about, really. Very little. How are you? What are you working at? And how's the family? That's about the height of it. And you see, the reason is because when a man and a woman are truly born again and come to faith in Christ, you know what you find? Everything about you changes. And that world that you used to love and live in and relish your life on, it's, it's no longer the enticing world anymore. It no longer has that hold or that grip on you. And why? Because, you see, Christ has changed your nature, that desire for those things. And now your desire are for the things of Christ and for his kingdom and for his glory. And the believer who feels at home in the world, I question that person's faith. The believer who feels they can sit in an ungodly atmosphere and in the presence of the ungodly in the world, even for nights out, I question it when they're comfortable in it. Because you find that when you're comfortable with the world, then Christ is not in the forefront of your mind and heart. You see, they said we can't sing because we don't know what God's doing with us here. And he's, God's so far away from us. They're in Babylon and they're looking towards Jerusalem, but it's so far away. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. Chapter one in the very last line of the very last verse of the chapter, he says, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now he has quite a privileged position, but he has a dangerous position. Position. He has to do everything right. We talked about it last week, and we, we can't talk about it now, but he's in a dangerous position because the king expected it to be 100% correct. Even the change in the look of his face, the king notices it, and if he's unhappy, the cupbearer can lose his head, lose his life. And so Nehemiah, when he's looking at this, he asks in chapter 1, remember those who came, it says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year. I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. They give a report, and Hananiah says, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. And now, here's Nehemiah. He's thinking, maybe someday, 
Maybe someday I'll be back in Jerusalem. Maybe someday I'll be back in God's temple. Maybe someday. But that day never really seems to come. And that hope and dream and plan of Nehemiah's, he's thinking, well, you know, it's such a long time, but suddenly one man steps into the picture called Hanani. And even the names here mean something. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, his dad's name, Hakaliah, means Jehovah enlightens. Something happens to Nehemiah that he becomes enlightened. And Nehemiah means Jehovah consoles. He comforts. And then when Hanani comes, his name is, comes from the root word for grace. It's Hanani, where Hanani comes from. And his name means gracious. God is showing grace to Nehemiah. God is showing grace to those of the captivity. But God is showing grace because in his providence and in God's sovereignty, God had a plan and a purpose for all of this to happen. Lord, why am I going through this? Why at this present time, it seems so long, it's been dragging on for years or for months or maybe even weeks seem long, and you're saying, Lord, why am I going through this at this present time? And God is doing a work, brother. God is doing a work, sister. And God allows things in our economy of time to drag out. But let's remember, a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Where's the sign of Jesus coming? Over 2,000 years now, and he hasn't come. It mustn't be true. Listen, in God's economy, Jesus only left two days ago. He only left two days ago. Think about it. So whenever you're praying for something or you're going through a situation or you're going through a great valley. By the way, he's in the palace of Shushan. Do you know what Shushan means? Lily. Do you know who Jesus is referred to as? The lily of the valleys. And so when you're in the valley, the lily is in the valley. When you're on the mountaintop, he's the rose of Sharon. Sharon was a, a, a place of, of a, 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 a mountaintop region and hills. And, and there the roses, were told, they, they, they grow very fragrant and bright and colorful and beautiful. And how is Jesus whenever things are going well for you? Oh, you're a wonderful Lord. You're fantastic. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Glory. Hallelujah. We're going to heaven and we're, oh, we're trying. Oh, I want to tell you about the great love of Jesus. It's so wonderful. Something comes our way and we find ourselves suddenly in the valley where it's a little bit more damp and dark and less colorful. But Jesus says, hey, I'm the rose of Sharon, but I am also the lily in the valleys. And sometimes he's harder to find, harder to pick up on, harder to see, harder to smell the fragrance of his, of his love and beauty, but he's always there. Even in Shushan, even in Babylon, even in captivity, even under duress, God knew what he was going to do with a man called Nehemiah. He says, Nehemiah, I'm going to use you to console and to comfort my people. Brother, you never know. Sister, you just don't know what God is birthing in you. Remember we looked at it last week. You've conceived something. Now it's growing in you. Then comes the birth. Nehemiah finds himself here as the king's cupbearer. 
And after this, he, he, he learns by being the cupbearer through, if you want, secular employment. He learns many things that God can put to use for his glory. Look, even when Jesus came uh, in the Gospels, when we read in the New Testament, he came to Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he calls men like that, fishermen, to go fishing after men. And he's fulfilling a, a prophecy there in Jeremiah, I think it's 16 and 16, if my memory serves me right. And I will send after them fishers and hunters, after Israel, the scattered sheep. And he comes and says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. He goes to a taxation booth and he sees a man, Levi, called Matthew. And he says, follow me. Matthew starts to walk after him. And what happens in Matthew's pen? The Spirit of God puts it on Matthew's heart through Matthew's pen to write the lineage, the authenticity of our Lord Jesus Christ to be a son of Abraham. As lineage right back to Abraham. Look, you see, he is of the seed of Abraham. He's not from a, 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 an illicit relationship with his mother and, and, and Panthera, a, a Roman mercenary soldier, as the, the Jews of the day tried to say about him. He's not of a virgin. A Roman mercenary, Panthera is the story, called Panthera. He came and he lay with Mary, and, and so this one was born. Matthew's pen, God uses the secularism of what he had taught him. He thought, well, I'm just here writing. I'm just here and I'm, nobody likes me and I'm writing, taking their money and I'm counting it and I'm, and I'm writing their names, who owes what and who's paid what. And, and all of that went down and God says, now I can turn that for the good. I can turn what you've learned for my glory. And he writes the very lineage of Christ to Abraham. He goes to look or later through, through Peter and Paul, preaching Luke, he uses Luke through the Spirit. And Luke takes the Lord, his, his lineage, right back to Adam. Right back to Adam. And so whenever, why would he do it with Luke? Because Luke was a doctor. You know, you go to doctors and you look up your family history, your family tree, if there's anything in it. And Luke would have had that mindset. That's why when you read Luke, you, you find many things that are more in detail than Luke. The detail of, you know, sweating great drops of blood. And, you know, the doctor sees those things and he writes those down to show the humanity of Christ in it. So here Nehemiah, he's, he's in a he's secular work. He's a king's cupbearer. And all of a sudden the Lord says, no, you're learning, but you don't realize that what you're learning, I'm going to use for my glory. You see, brother, sister, you don't know whatever job you're in. Lord, I want out of this job. Yeah, that's okay. And we can pray that the Lord will move you on to something else. There's nothing wrong with that. But things that happen in our work or even in our home life, things that are put into us, the talents that are within us, God stirs them up. Even before we're saved, we're learning. God takes them. And God says, oh, I have something to, to use that for. And puts a call in your life. Places that ability in you. And he calls you out and he says, now here you are. I want you here. 
So let's rejoice this morning, even in the job you hate, and say, Lord, thank you. You're going to make me. You're going to make me a. You're going to make me uh, something for your glory. What I'm learning, you will take it and use it for your own honor. Nehemiah, he's here and he's learning. His secular employment, he had learned how to hold his nerve. Now, when we read with hindsight the book of Nehemiah, we understand Nehemiah holding his nerve for the Lord willing, uh, God willing, next week. If I do another part in this, unless the Lord lays something heavy on my heart to change it. But in next week, we will see this man is wall building. And that's not very glamorous. He was a builder. I know one or two builders in here this morning. And the Lord used him for building. Hold on, I was in a, at least the palace was nice. It was well decorated. It was full of gold. Lovely apparel. Now I'm standing at the outside of a ruined temple and city. It's just being built and I'm starting to build a wall. My hands are getting dirty. Sometimes we think God's calls all clean work. Sometimes we think God's going to call us in. I know what he's going to do. I'm his cupbearer. The Lord's going to remove him and make me the king. But the Lord says, no, I want you to go travel about, it's probably about 500 miles straight across, but they'd usually go up and down the Fertile Crescent. 600 miles. And then when you get there, you're going to be hated. They're going to talk about you. They're going to say all manner of things evil against you. You're going to try and do your best, and they're going to laugh at it. You'll hear it all next week. And Nehemiah, he's, as it were, up the scaffolding, and they're shouting up at him. Sure, even if a fox leans against that wall, your building's rubbish. It'll be knocked down. What are you doing this for? And Nehemiah's realizing he's nothing to work with but the rubble of past life. But you see, brothers and sisters, whenever you and I look at the rubble of our past life, it pulls us down. We can't build with that. Let it go. But do you see the rubble of your past life? God cleans it up and he rebuilds the walls again. He builds his temple in it. And that's what God's doing here. And you'll find that Nehemiah says, Lord, I thought I was going to be the king. Look at me. But Nehemiah didn't realize after the wall building and everything was settled and God had sealed it, Nehemiah became the governor of Jerusalem. So we find here that he's learning all the time. He learns to hold his nerve for these enemies would come against him. God was putting it into him when he was before the king. He learns how to expect danger and face even death. Every time he tasted that wine for the king, he could have died at any moment. It was like playing Russian roulette with a glass of wine. He also learned how to be cautious. He learned how to read expressions, to know personalities. He learned how to be on alert at all times because with him here was a temperamental king. The psalmist sort of talks about this. If you want to just flick quickly with me to Psalm 123. 
And the psalmist likens it as not that we live in fear with our great King, the Lord Jesus. Not that we live in, in, in fear, but yes, in reverence, but in willingness of wanting to serve him, to do well for him, through love. Psalm 123, and this is what's one of the, known as one of the songs of the Greeks. They actually sang this where on their way to the temple, for example, at Passover. They sang these songs of the Greeks, and they were an elevation psalm. They were going up steps uphill toward the holy temple. So now we're going up and we're looking as we go up and sing this Psalm 123. It says, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. And no matter how high we think we have got up the ladder, no matter how many steps we reckon we have got up, we must always remember that our salvation and our strength cometh from the Lord. That he is always on the throne and that we are his servants. Notice this, unto thee. Lift thine up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Now notice, behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Here the psalmist is saying, just like Nebuchadnezzar, pardon me, Nebuchadnezzar, yes, with Nehemiah, Nehemiah would have been watching him. The king only had to lift a hand and do a gesture. He could read it and he went. He knew it. The king only had to look a certain way and he knew the very temperament and the feeling of the moment. That's how much he was in touch and aligned with the king. Here the psalmist says, Lord, make me like that with you. I pray that for my life. May God make every one of us like that for him when the Lord, all he does is, as it were, have a look. Gesture his hand and power. Speak his word only. And we are in full attention. We're ready to move. Right away. Help us, Lord. Oh, that we would be alive unto God. That we would be in tune with His Spirit. And so enamored and in love with Jesus. That our hearts would be one. Even as He and His Father are one. So Nehemiah has been looking... And he notices one day as this man Hanani comes and he asks them concerning going back home. And it seems like everything's lost. Where do you go to now? We're told that when the, the word of this man comes, the call, the call of God ignites in his heart. You see, Brothers and sisters, the, the call of God is already within you. And when you hear the word, it ignites in your heart. It ignites something in you. And it sets a flame, a light. And you can't put it out. 
just can't put it out. Nehemiah has this experience where it ignites in him. And he realizes there's no promotion erosion with Nehemiah. I'll say it again. There's no promotion erosion with Nehemiah. And nothing else, in other words, nothing else matters. Nothing else counts. Nothing else satisfies his heart but to serve in the calling that has been ignited in his life. Promotion erosion is when we wait and wait until things were thin and we step in to claim the seat. When job and overtime or double time takes the place of what he wants us to do. When secular life and the, the busyness of it, the popularity in it, when that overcomes that which Christ has called us for, promotion, erosion. It erodes our faith and it erodes at us, erodes the very life of Christ in us. It erodes until it overcomes. Here, no promotion, erosion with the cupbearer. This man now, he has a decision to make. He's challenged by God. I wonder, has God challenged us this morning? Has the Holy Spirit, has he placed something on your heart? Has he placed something in your life, in your mind? And now the flame's starting to burn. You're saying, Lord, I know you're speaking to me about this. And you're fighting against it. You see, maybe even a little bit of, of self says, no, I don't want that. Or maybe it is promotion erosion because then that which we want to promote will erode us because we want to keep it, hold on to it. Brother, sister, the best advice that I could give you this morning, no matter what it costs you, lay it down at Jesus' feet. Lay it down at his feet and say, Lord, take me. As we sang earlier, I surrender all. Here, Nehemiah, he has a decision to make. Because God's will shall be done. One more step of courage. One more step of bravery, Nehemiah. And you'll be brought into a greater blessing of God. Now hold on a wee minute. He's at the wall and they're shouting at him. They're trying to get him back to Babylon. They don't want him about the place, yes. But that's what the world wants. The blessing isn't from the world, brother. Listen, sister, your blessing doesn't come from the world. Your blessing comes from the Lord. No matter what. Listen, see if I had a pound coin. I was going to say a penny, but I'm going to up the stakes. If I had a pound coin for everyone who has slandered me or bad-mouthed me or said something against me, listen, I'd be able to buy the whole of Guildford. I don't know what that would cost, but I think it would. But nevertheless, when God says, do it, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. 
an old Puritan called Thomas Watson. This is what he said on God's providence. Okay, God's providence. He writes, there are three things in providence. One, God's foreknowing. Two, God's determining. Three, God's directing all things to their periods and events. God's directing because he foreknowing that period and event you find yourself in now. There's nothing that you're in now or have come through or will go through that takes God by surprise. Showed you last week, if you, if you weren't here last week and you want to get uh, the, uh, it online, it's online, you can listen to it. But last week, what I showed you was that God had already said before uh, the house of Judah, or if you want, the Jews went into Babylon. He said through Jeremiah, after 70 years, I'll bring you out to this place, to Jerusalem again. Now they go in, 70 years is a long time. Well, listen, if you're good at miles, then going by a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. How many hours were there there in God's economy? It was a, a period of time long to us, but God is not subject to time. God is outside of time. And he's already in our tomorrow. He's already in your tomorrow. And when you get up tomorrow morning, don't think, well, I'm, uh, this day is starting with you, God. No, the Lord says, son, daughter, you're starting with me because I'm already in this day. When Noah and his, uh, built the ark, uh, the first one in the ark was not Noah, nor his wife, nor his sons, nor their wives. The first one in the ark was God. God says, come now and all thy house into the ark. He was inside saying, now come on. See, God's already in the call that he's placed in your heart and igniting it now. He says, come on, come on. I'm waiting for you. He knew today. He knew this morning. He knew right now. He knew where you'd sit. He knew your seat and he brought you. See, it's his foreknowing. His foreknowing you who would be right at this meeting this morning. Lord, I need you to talk to me. You're not talking to me. Well, I hope he's talking to you now. I pray our ears are opened. His foreknowing was his determining. We hear in gospel meetings all the time, and I, I do it too. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not here by an accident. You're here by appointment, by divine appointment. You're here under God's sovereignty, and that's true. Well, Christian, guess what? Even if you've just visited this morning, it's the same for you today. God's directing your life. And in that, he gives us freedom. He gives us liberty, greater freedom and greater liberty than in the palace before a king where we thought we had a privileged position, but really, the devil had us captive the whole time. 
time to let the Lord break the chains that have bound you. Religious chains bind you. Let the Lord break the chains of bind you. I must close. I didn't even get them a second part because of what? This is the second part, but it wasn't what I was going to bring as the second part. But we'll do a third part. Is that all right, everyone? Whoever's going to come, bless the Lord. You see, this man, Nehemiah, his calling was in his heart, but he didn't realize it. God was working. And then God, through the words of Hanani, grace. Grace. Isn't that a beautiful word? Isn't it beautiful to think of grace, the grace of God? The grace came, the divine influence of God came into the heart of Nehemiah. The word of the Lord touched him, ignited him, and he would never be the same. You can't help it. You can't help it. Notice what he says as we close here. Nehemiah chapter 2. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Arxaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, saying, Thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Nehemiah had a decision. Do I try my best to hone this in? Do you know how long he held this in for? Four months. Four months. How do you know? Okay. If you go to chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the palace. This is when Hannah and I comes with the word. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Arxaxerxes the king. Notice a different month in the same year. From one month, which is in chapter 1, verse 1, Cheslu, to the Nissan and Nissan in chapter 2, verse 1 is four months. You know what those would be in our calendar? Chesley would be December. December. And, and Nissan would be about April getting into May. You know the funny thing is, I was reading that again this morning. I never realized it until I was reading it just earlier this morning. My last post ended in December. <laughs> And we've just come into here the end of April, going into May. I never realized that. I actually never realized that until, until this morning. You know, before months, and what does he do? Look what it says here. It says the first four of chapter one. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. When are we going to learn to weep and mourn for the souls of law, the law? When are we going to learn to weep and mourn for the state of the church? 
the apostasy that's in it. When are we going to learn to weep and mourn over the condition of men and women? He wept and he mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He went to the Lord. Lord, help us with this. And then again, we read in chapter 2 that he does it all over again. Verse 4, So I prayed unto the God of heaven. He comes He comes to the king. The king wants to know, what's wrong with your face? If the king had been from Belfast, he'd have said, what's wrong with your old (laughs) bake? What's wrong with your face? He had a decision to make. This is it. Do I take my stand before the king? Or do I say I'm sick and just pretend and get off with it? Till, see if this desire, this burn goes away. And the king says, what's wrong with your countenance? Like you're sad, but you're not sick. Oh, what's that one out the window? I'm going to tell him. I need to take a stand for God. See, brothers and sisters, that's where we are. Even this morning, and the message from the Spirit. Know not that these are the last days. Know what day the sign of the times. When apostasy of the church. When the nations are in clamor. We must be up. And doing. For Christ's sake. The call of God. We'll look at it a little bit next week. In the building of the wall. Well if, if we get there next week. In the Lord's will. God bless you all. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you all for coming this morning. You know, we are.